This is Ukraine calling. Hello and welcome to Ukraine Calling, the English language podcast from Romanski Radio in Kiev. I am Andrei Kulikov, and I have two very interesting and um, I would say uh, very knowledgeable persons as interlocutors today. These are Rachel and Yulia, but uh, let them introduce themselves. I'm Rachel Denber. I'm Deputy Director for Europe and Central Asia at Human Rights Watch, and I'm delighted to be here. Hi, my name is Yulia Gorbanova. I'm a Senior Researcher for Ukraine for Human Rights Watch. Thank you for having us. Well, thank you, actually, for coming here. And uh, Rachel said before we started recording, it's a beautiful day in Kiev, but it was also marked with three and a half hours of uh, air alert. Have you got used to it? to such things. Well, the weather is beautiful in Kiev, and the city looks beautiful, and it's a very surreal contrast to what is happening in the country and what's been happening in the country really since 2014 and more intensively since obviously since 2020 since February 2022. So, it's a it's a stark contrast. I don't live in Ukraine. I live in New York. But I think even from the many thousands of miles away of the distance between me and Ukraine, I am still in a state of shock every day. Um, and I can't, I can only imagine what it must be like for people who live and experience this war every day in their lives. May I tell you that for people who live here and experience the war every day in our lives, it is a great encouragement and reinforcement that thousands of miles away in New York or Toronto or Paris, for that matter, there are people who care. And Human Rights Watch is, of course, an organization of people who care, and uh, both individually and as a, a reputed international organization. But what do you pay your attention to, first of all, while regarding the Ukrainian situation? So Human Rights Watch is a global human rights organization, and our mission is to improve human rights uh, in the countries that we work on and to give a voice, to ensure that there is a voice for survivors of human rights violations and for victim, the families of victims. Um, and so we do that through careful, robust uh, documentation of uh, violations and that, that we document and put out in the reports like the one that we published yesterday. And for Ukraine, the over because this is a, a country at, at war, our overriding concern is for the protection of civilians uh, in the armed conflict. So that's the full range of protections that's to which civilians uh, are entitled under the Geneva Conventions and that parties to the conflict are obligated to, to, to uphold. So it's to protect civilians from indiscriminate or deliberate or disproportionate attacks uh, during hostilities, to protect them from, you know, in situations of occupation, to protect them from summary execution, detention, arbitrary detention, torture, and forced disappearance, uh, sexual violence and any other kind of, uh, you know, bodily uh, or you know, any kind of violation of personal integrity. It's protection against uh, things like forced transfers, forced deportations, and things like that. Obviously, the, the men are, you know, under the, under the Geneva Conventions, our attention is also focused on the protection of um, 
POWs from, you know, torture, ill treatment and, and other unlawful uh, tr- treatment that is unlawful uh, under the Geneva Conventions. I think that we'll talk about the report in detail a bit later. But uh, before this, I want to ask Julia, obviously, there's uh, research preceding every report and you are a researcher what do you research specifically where ukraine is concerned and what is your role or maybe there are other researchers as well in preparing this report sure so at human rights watch we have thematic divisions and geographic divisions and so i belong to a geographic division which covers europe and central asia region um and i've been working on ukraine for a number of years now um, but we also have um, experts who work specifically on separate issues related to human rights so children's rights women's rights we have arms experts and every piece of research that we do in ukraine and elsewhere it's usually a combination of of um, expertise and research that um, all these people kind of put together. Um, and that's why it sometimes takes a really long time to produce something which can be frustrating, but that's... In your book, what is really <laughs> long time? Well, <laughs> it can be... Sometimes we have to, we respond quickly to, for instance, a particular attack. So one example is an attack on Kriminchuk shopping mall, which happened in the summer of uh, 2022. So we were on the ground actually doing research for this report and we were not far driving distance from where the strike happened to the two strikes um, on the mall and the nearby uh, road um, transportation facility. And we were able to get there very quickly and do research on the ground very quickly. That's why it's so important to be able to to do that, but it's not always possible, of course. Um, and so that was an example of something we published in like two or three days. And, but usually a large report like the one that we are presenting in Kiev this week is uh, can take up to a year or several months. So really. And that's probably connected to the need to verify the facts. Exactly, exactly. What is the procedure? So uh, field research uh, includes, it's it's quite straightforward, really. So we go on the ground, we go to a place where something happened, and then we talk to as many witnesses, victims, relatives as possible. We talk to local officials, we make, uh, it, it's a rule that we have to corroborate each account. So we cannot just take one story and, you know, include it as the evidence of something. So we have to Uh, connect the dots by gathering all these pieces. And if it's a research into an attack uh, using a certain type of weapon, or if we, you know, we, we basically have to build the picture from the ground up. So we don't come to a place with a conclusion what happened. We build it from, from pieces. So we find weapon fragments and we identify, if we can, you know, by the size of a crater or, you know, a direction where possibly, according to witness accounts, where the, you know, a missile came from, if it's possible, again, it's not always possible, and from, you know, what it sounded like, what people heard, you know, it's, it's sometimes it's just listening to people talk and then understanding the picture. And then in other research, it's uh, interviewing experts or understanding practices around the world um, in terms of a particular issue to do with you know, whatever area we're working on. So it really depends on the on the topic. But in Ukraine, it's mostly been in last 18 months now, almost two years, it's been mostly kind of this fast response work. And this, I think, is one of a few very in-depth 
sort of reports that we've taken a long time to write. But as an example of our work on Crimea, for example, that's uh, something we've been following very closely since 2014, and that included analyzing legal practices, legislation, you know, speaking to lawyers about cases of uh, persecution of Crimean Tatars for, you know, belonging to Hizbut Tahrir, which is what Russian force, Russian authorities have been doing since the occupation. So it's, it really depends on, on, the, on the issue. Rachel, what are the bullet points of the report? Well, the report is called Tanks on the Playground, and it's a report about the military use of schools and the tax on schools and their impact on education access to education for Ukrainian children. Main points are that in in the regions where we conducted the research, that's Kharkivska, Chernivska, Kievska, and Mykolaivska regions, that uh, Russian, mainly Russian forces used schools to encamp their troops, to launch attacks, outward attacks, to store uh, ammunition, to park their military vehicles, to detain civilians, detain and torture, in some cases, civilians. And also they used the schools to, you know, do medical treatment for their, their troops. Um, and when they used schools in this manner, uh, it made them, obviously, it made the, the schools um, targets you know, it, it increased their, their risk of being attacked because, you know, obviously you want to get the Russian, if the, the goal is to dislodge uh, Russian military forces, you need to get them out of these schools. So one bullet point is Russian forces used uh, schools in this manner. They also looted these schools, which, uh, you know, taking away computers, computer equipment, furniture, desks, furnaces, Anything that didn't like get up and walk away, they they took, um, and they left a mess. Usually, left a big mess behind, and you know, with uh, really uh, offensive, prof- uh, profane uh, graffiti on the wall, swastikas, and other things that I just I won't even repeat. The second bullet point is that they also a- attacked schools. We documented numerous uh, instances when Russian forces attacked schools, um, including in instances when when they were retreating. So they were, you know, getting for you know during the deoccupation process, they they were retreating and they fired on schools as they were t- retreating, including some of the schools that they had occupied. They left these schools in a complete state of disaster. Um, as you know, um, almost uh, three thousand eight hundred schools have been damaged, uh, have endured some kind of damage in Ukraine since the full scale invasion. Uh, three hundred and sixty five have been totally destroyed. Not all of not all of these cases are cases in which they were uh, they were occupied by uh, by Russian forces, but but I think it's an that's a, a second bullet point uh, about the overall this you know, damage that that schools have suffered since the arm since the full scale invasion. The next point is about the impact that this has had on education for ch- on children's access for education on children's access to education, and that's been uh, you know, children's access to education has. Been, I mean, it's been severely interrupted, but it's also important to highlight the the 
efforts that the Ukrainian government has made to keep to keep children in school, uh, in education programs at least. Um, much of the education process is taking place by now either by hybrid education or by online education or by, you know, having kids go to, you know, moving to other schools. So they have um, these re- results in overcrowding of these schools. But education has definitely been impacted. I think those are the, the the main points, and maybe Yulia. Yes, but before I uh, give the floor, uh, give the mic to Yulia, there is a question because when you first mentioned the use of schools by armed forces, you said mainly Russian forces, which gives me grounds to believe that you have uh, documented or at least found. And knowing the Human Rights Watch, I think that you have verified those facts that the Ukrainian forces did this too. Well, let me just start by saying that to use a school in an armed conflict is not a violation of the Geneva Conventions. I think it's important to mention that. I think that there's a misperception about that. We can talk more about that later in the interview. So there were instances when that we found that, but not very many, when Ukrainian forces use schools. They use them in a very different manner, I'd have to say. We didn't come across cases where they, you know, outright encamped in schools or where they were, you know, were clearly using them as barracks. Um, they certainly, they, we didn't find a single case when Ukrainian forces looted the schools or when they defaced the schools or anything like that. So it was a very, there were very, there were very few cases and they were, um, of a, I think, of a, of a different nature. But still, there were such cases and I personally am grateful to Human Rights Watch for paying attention to both sides in this uh, terrible situation. Whatever the uh, numerical dimension is, we should be as exacting towards ourselves as we are to the entire situation. Thank you very much. Also for taking the risk to talk about this because some people in this country do not want to hear and uh, sometimes they accuse international organizations of taking the wrong side in the war, in the conflict or things like that. Yulia? about the more about the bullet points and probably about the education process and the impact on this process of what's happening in Ukraine now. Sure. I think that the... So I'll just take a step back quickly to say that this work on protection of education from attack, it's something that Human Rights Watch has been doing in many, many countries. And the document called the Safe Schools Declaration, which Ukraine endorsed in 2019, it's really has been the result of that work of many organizations, including ours. There is a coalition to protect education from attack, which Human Rights Watch is a founding member of. Um, so this topic, again, is something that we looked at in, in many places and in many countries. And my, my colleagues have worked in all over the world on this. And the, the point is really to, to show, so in cases of Russian forces, as Rachel mentioned, the scale of destruction, unnecessary destruction that was caused was really striking because when we, uh, with my colleagues, we walked into some of the schools after Russian forces left and the areas were deoccupied and we walked in and what we witnessed was completely horrific and it just seemed like such senseless, you know, massive amount of unnecessary uh, destruction that was caused. However, 
in case where Ukrainian forces used schools, which we documented, there were, you know, there's an example, uh, for instance, of uh, a school in Kievsk region, which was used by Ukrainian forces at one point. But it, the way it was used was that uh, there were civilians sheltering in the basement of the school and territorial defense forces were um, guarding the school or protecting uh, civilians. Or in another case, there was a checkpoint that was set up not far from the school. So all these actions increase risk for civilians. But at the same time, you can't, like, we have to be objective and say that you can't compare these two for this particular report. And that's what we try to, to make very clear. And I mean, in terms of the education process, again, Rachel also, I think, covered some of that. The efforts that Ukrainian authorities have undertaken to ensure that kids remain in schools have been great. And, you know, in Bucha, for example, school number three, which was destroyed by a return fire. It was destroyed by Ukrainian forces fire because it was turned into a target by Russian forces who were uh, deployed inside that school. It took over a year to restore that school, to rebuild it. And during that time, uh, kids went, uh, they studied in shifts, they uh, studied in the annex, which was effectively adjusted to be used as a as a as a school uh, building and that's sort of the type of examples we saw everywhere where teachers and parents came together to clean the schools first of all and to sometimes even pull their own money together to start the renovation process where they could uh, and then of course there's been enormous support from international organizations and there were quite a few uh, interesting uh, studies also done, which we looked at when we researched this report. One was uh, by a Ukrainian think tank called CEDOS, and it was funded by the uh, International Renaissance Foundation, where they looked at psychological impact in particular, among other things. And that's something we didn't look too much into for our report, but it's something that I think we should keep flagging, just how much, what a, what a significant psychological impact uh, this has had and will continue to have on children. And we also kept hearing from teachers and parents things like, you know, kids have been so brave. They've really, you know, they've really adjusted. They, they're doing their homework so well. They're doing what they can to, to study. They want to go back to school. And hearing that on one hand is just as incredible as seeing, you know, parents putting up a roof over a destroyed school using their own money. But on the other hand, it's just so sad that it should not be happening this way, that kids should not have to adjust to things like that. Um, and, you know, going back to Safe Schools Declaration and, and work of many organizations, including Human Rights Watch and this, the point is not to say, well, you know, this forces use schools and it's, you know, and then talk about, you know, kind of wave your finger and say, oh, this is a violation or this is a crime or whatever. But this, it's just to to show that even though it's not banned by, it's it's a very unique report in that sense. So it's not a violation of international humanitarian law, but it's just to show what actually happens when military use schools. And the progress that Ukraine has made, uh, because we did similar research in 2016 and uh, in Donbass, and the progress Ukraine has made in understanding and approaching this issue, training their military uh, not to use schools and doing it strictly as necessary and aiming to uh, really reduce military use of schools as much as possible. It's been quite great to, to, to witness. 
While listening to my interlocutors, I uh, noticed that while uh, Rachel used the word survivors, Yulia used the word victims, which gives me grounds to suggest that Yulia is from legal background. Yes? Yes, I'm yes. <laughs> And Rachel is from human rights background. Well, I I did I also use the word victim when I say survive I use the word survivors and that is not a legal not really a legal yeah, term. Yeah. Julia is a lawyer and I'm not, I confess. Yeah, sure. So, but but uh victim can also be like a there are there are victims uh who did not survive and we want to give voice to their families. Yeah, you know? I understand. Yeah. I understand. I just wanted yeah. to draw our <laughs> listeners attention to Very these peculi- peculiarities and the uh, use of different words in different situations and uh yes, survivors and yes, victims, but they all are united with one word a person or a uh, human being or whatever. And uh, to uh, finish this conversation, which, although it was filled with horrible things, I still think is very humane, I want to put a human touch to it and ask Rachel and Julia, or probably Julia and Rachel, to share their memories of the schools that they used to go to. Who wants to start? <laughs> you certainly start. didn't expect this. I definitely did not expect this. Please okay. tell, tell me and our listeners about your school. Gosh. Well, it was called Culbertson School, and it's in New Jersey. Southern New Jersey or northern New Jersey? Oh, my goodness. Southern New Jersey. Exit three off the turnpike. All right, all right. right. <laughs> There's quite a difference. But... Yes, yes, it is. Thank you for noticing. Um, so it's in, in, in South Jersey, in a suburb of, Camp, of, uh, of Philadelphia. And it was a little, well, t- to me it seemed big when I went there because I was a little girl. But it was a, a building that probably was went up in like 1910 or 1920. Um, it was lovely, kind of a Gothic building. Many American schools are, are look like that. Um, three-story building. And what do I remember about it? I remember getting kicked out of the kindergarten class for giving back talk to the teacher. <laughs> I had very happy memories from there as well. But I remember the teachers just giving extraordinary attention to their to their to their students and sadly that that lovely little school um was torn down and it's now what is it now some anonymous box store you know walgreens or who knows what all right julia i went to a russian school um i remember that I don't have very fond memories of it. I mean, I have fond memories of my friends. I loved, um, my favorite subject were, subjects were geography and English. Um, I hated history. I still have massive <laughs> gaps uh, because I hated the history lesson so much. Well, sometimes it's uh, better not to learn what you are being taught at school and have gaps and fill them on your own. Yeah, but I think that the most... Um, the 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 warmest memory from my childhood was to do with um we and my friends and I were into um Tolkien and Lord of the Rings books and at the time it was before it was trendy before it was a thing and we used to organize kind of role games and um reenact different um different parts of the book and were you a Owen or who uh, I was an elf yes I was oh. a, yeah <laughs> I thought so 
All right. Wait uh, a minute, Andre. What about your school? Where did you go to school? <laughs> What's your fond memory of school? Well, my fond memory of school was that I was able to switch the schools because for eight years I went to the Russian language school and then I finished my education in Ukrainian. And the biggest fond memory is that my parents were not against this. I'm from the Russian-speaking family, from... I don't know all the generations, but uh, my parents were always, if not supportive of my uh, gravitation towards Ukrainian, then at least they were not put in any obstacles. And the last two years in my school were actually very came very very handy later when uh, there was a need in people who spoke and uh, wrote good ukrainian and all this kind of stuff you know so this is one of the fondest memories on the higher plate of things on the other hand uh, another fond memory is not uh, it's when something good comes or something awful my school was and still is one of the oldest Ukrainian schools in Kiev. Actually, it's the, it was founded back in 1871 as the first Ukrainian language secondary education establishment on the territory of the Russian Empire. In uh, Halichina, they used to have Ukrainian schools at that time, but this was here. And of course, there was a lot of uh, undesired literature in the library of uh, our school. And I lived in the yard, in the courtyard of the school. And when they were, when the uh, party and KGB were extracting this literature and confiscating it, the teachers and librarians sometimes would give them some scrap paper just for the weight, and they took part of the valuable books to their homes, but they could not take them all. So they would bring uh, the books out in our courtyard and put them in stocks next to garbage bin. And I would watch this from my fourth floor, and as soon as I saw that they were putting those books, I would make it a beeline, to them and grab some of the books and because of this because of this uh, sometimes very unnoticeable protest i was able to read at the age of 14 or 15 some things that became available for general consumption much much later so you never know what uh, how this will and how this will result, and I'm sure that the Human Rights Watch does not plan to stop at this. And after education, what do you plan to pay your primary attention to, if there is primary attention? Because I think that you have to watch a Human Rights Watch. You have to watch pretty much everything. I mean, one, I can start. One topic that we want to look into next is the imposition of Russian curriculum in occupied areas. Uh, we feel that it's a very serious issue that others are also looking into, but it's something But that you we, don't have uh, access to most of the occupied areas. We do not have access. No. It will be very difficult to, mm -hmm. to do that research, but it's, it's not the first time we don't have access to a place, so we'll figure it out. Yep. 
And we've already and we and we have done some research in deoccupied areas, but yeah, it is a, as Julia said, it's a, it's it's not easy to to do research in what are essentially closed closed regimes, right? But it's there are a lot of countries that we there are places the Human Rights Watch covers where we don't have access, so we always find a way. By the way, another interesting or maybe significant moment in the terminology is deoccupied areas. Even in Ukrainian, we say mostly deoccupied areas, not liberated areas. Is this because deoccupation does not necessarily mean liberation? What's your take on this? I we use deoccupation because that's the that's a, the most fact based way of describing what happens, you know, it's that was occupied, then it was by one military, and then it was deoccupied by another military. So it's just, to me, it just seems very straightforward. You don't even have to think about it. It was deoccupied. Some people say liberated, that's fine. Probably deoccupied is the more, maybe that has a more of a legal, you know, a legal frame. But um, yeah, and other issues that we'll, you know, we, we keep our eye on are uh, the issues that Yuli has been doing a lot of research on this is the treatment of uh, civilian detainees, civilians who get detained by by Russian forces. Yuli has been keeping a very close eye on Crimea, and you know, which is a set of, you know, as you know, a set of human rights issues that you know, that lost uh, international attention even before the full-scale invasion and since the full-scale invasion, we want we really want to, to boost it, to boost attention to it. We will also continue to pay attention to indiscriminate attacks when they happen. There are a lot of really good other, you know, human rights investigators that are that are looking into indiscriminate attacks. Truth Hounds, for example, just they just put out an amazing report on the uh, on the attack on the Rio restaurant in Kramat in Kramatorsk. Uh, we went to a presentation of that, and we were, you know, we were just blown away by it. So there are, and uh, you know, there are other organizations that are doing that work. But we, you know, we also want to keep our eye on that to see when our when our expertise would be, uh, you know, would bring some value added, both our expertise in, as Yulia said, in arms and our conflict experts and and also our colleagues who work on digital investigations, so using satellite technology and other aspects of uh, open source uh, information technology. So, you know, we'll, we'll have our eye on a lot of things uh, in Ukraine going forward. To round up this uh, conversation, let's take a quick look into the future. After the occupation comes, there is a need for transitional justice. How closely will Human Rights Watch watch how transitional justice is meted out in Ukraine? I think when the time comes, that will be a, a top concern of ours. Right. What are the major traps that we may fall into? Well, one is that I, I I don't want to look at it as maybe maybe we don't look at it as traps. Maybe we'll look at it on you know opportunities. All right. <laughs> so uh, one uh, you know one track will obviously be to ensure justice for war crimes, crimes against humanity that took place during the conflict, and I mean that that work is already being done now. You know. By all of the structures that you that your listeners, I'm sure, are already aware of, by the International Criminal Court, by universal jurisdiction cases, by the work of the Prosecutor General and then the Prosecutor General's Office, and then there are other you know tribunals that are being created or thought or, or conceptualized now. So there's there's going to be that work, but I think that there will also be 
a lot of work that will need to be done to ensure that when deoccupation happens, that people who are uh, suspected of having collaborated or worked with, uh, you know, under the occupation to ensure that any kind of processes that take place against them are not excessive, are not arbitrary, that take account, that take full account of the pressure and coercion and circumstances that people were, were in fact under. And that those process and that any, any effort to, you know, to prosecute people who provided services to the opposing military power, that really they're focusing on the big the big damage that was done and, and not just focusing on people who are, are, who were and continue to be in vulnerable positions. And so just make easy cases. You know, that's, I think that's, that will almost certainly be a, an issue that I think many, I think that the, the Ukrainian civil human rights organizations and other civil society organizations rightly already focused on, um, because, you know, they, they want to make sure that there is, um, uh, you know that there's really a, a, a just you know, that there's justice and not just um, ven- you know vengeance or easy you know that, that that's uh, you know not just looking at the easy people you know the easy vulnerable people um, so that I think that'll be important and um, you know there are all, there are probably all there are all kinds of example examples from around the world of transitional justice and processes that. Even beyond justice, you know, transitional justice, uh, you know, the just processes of um, reconciliation, you know, reconciliation, you know, the, the, the that take place that, that needs to take place after the war, after wartime, or after or other increasing, you know, intensely polarizing situations. You know, in South Africa, there was, of course, these are very different situations, but there they were still, you know, there was a, a quite an extensive reconciliation process. Probably in the Baltics as well. No, sorry, not the Baltics. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Balkans. Yes, thank you. Um, uh, there were, uh, you know, reconciliation processes. So, we'll our we will be more focused on issues of justice, but I'm sure that there will also be reconciliation processes. And the last question goes to Yulia. As Rachel mentioned, that you have done a lot of research on Crimea, and uh, bringing in the topic of uh, collaborationism and retribution or whatever, there's a special scale to determine the level of collaboration offered by one of the public or non-governmental organizations uh, uh, called the Crimean Tatar Resource Center. It uh, is measured on the scale of uh, 1 to 10, as far as I remember. I don't know whether you are familiar with it, but uh-huh. but in principle, can you measure the level of collaboration, the level of uh, cooperation with uh, the occupying power and all this kind of stuff. Do you mean in Crimea specifically? Well, uh, I just mentioned it because uh, you are a researcher on Crimea, but in in general, of course, in general, it's just an example. I think it's it's a difficult question to answer. I think that it also I also agree that it's concerning when you know 
on one hand, I'm sure there are genuine cases of collaboration when, you know, people or groups, organizations or officials, especially, you know, work to accommodate the occupying power. They provide information, sensitive information or do other kind of acts that qualify as collaboration. But then on the other hand, there are people who even under international law have, again, it's something Rachel alluded to, have no choice, but to, you know, it's a place where they live and they continue doing what they've been doing. You know, a good example are teachers, for example. So if there, I think there are 30,000 teachers in Crimea. And when we get to conversation about transitional justice and reconciliation and reintegration, it's very important to keep in mind, you know, what will happen to all these people who just continued doing their work. So I think that that's, I don't know if that really answers your question. I, I, I don't know if I can rate collaboration scale of one to 10, but I think that the keeping that large amount of people who remain in occupied areas, whether they were occupied in 2014 or occupied more recently, it's important to distinguish between those people uh, and real collaborators who should be uh, prosecuted. And also going after small cases like that really overwhelms the system and that it creates a backlog of cases. And then the cases that need to be dealt with are kind of on the, you know, don't get to be prosecuted quickly and effectively. And that also holds uh, justice. Thank you, Yulia. Thank you, Rachel. And this completes this issue of Ukraine Calling, the English-language podcast from Hromadsky Radio in Kiev. I am Andrei Kulikov, and my interviewees today were Rachel Denber. She's a deputy director for Europe and Central Asia Division of uh, the Human Rights Watch, and Yulia Gorbunova, who is a senior researcher for the Human Rights Watch. This is Ukraine calling.